0: All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I remember what it was like on Tuesday morning? We woke up and we're just like, "Is it really only Tuesday?" Like Monday felt like oh three days or something, and we wake up Tuesday and you're like, "Wait, this is just Tuesday." And then this morning you woke up and you're like, "Is it really Friday already?" Is this really, is it really Friday, like this is the last day? It's not the last day, it's just the first day of the rest of your life. So I wanna do a quick review. Um, Quick review, the first day we looked at Jesus as the Creator. And there were two things that we wanted to see especially and specifically about Him. Do you remember what they were? It's fine. This is an open book quiz. Just reviewing. Reviewing. God, deity. What else? Eternity. Deity and in, in eternity. We were trying to see those two features of Jesus and then how that played out as He created the world, created us, and therefore is our, He owns us and that one of the things I didn't mention, but, but by creating um, us in his image, it's not possible for the image to have qualities and characteristics that exceed the creator. Just a small point. So what was the next series? Help me remember. The next topic, the next uh, lesson after creator. What was the next one? Savior. And what did we, what, what were we trying to see there? The incarnation is absolutely necessary for our
1: salvation.
0: Yes. That was one. Very good. So that's what we were trying to see, is the fact that we wanted to see Jesus first as God, but then also to, to understand that His humanity was necessary, and both of those two are essential for our salvation. And that as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We didn't quite get to that until we got into the next one, which was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and in there we saw two things. We saw that that He was um, that all things are put under His feet, and that is squarely rooted in His His um, identity as the last Adam. In the second man, and and there's just a lot of things implied, and, and it's like there's just a lot in those two file folders. Yesterday, we saw Jesus as the intercessor. We looked at some of his ministry and what that looks like, and maybe what he might be doing right now. So that takes us all the way up to the present, and today we have Jesus... The coming king. So we're gonna look at, and I just we're gonna look at what's next. What's next? In terms of Jesus, our Lord, our King. What's coming? And as in each of those epochs of the life cycle of this universe, Jesus is the central figure. Jesus is the central figure of all that's to come. So I'm going to try not to spend too long on this, but I do feel like a topic like this one warrants at least a few disclaimers. So I'm going (coughs) to try not to spend the rest of my time making disclaimers. I want to try to get these out of the way, and then we can go on together. So let me say it this way. One of the things that set the Hebrews apart from their pagan contemporaries was this notion that history is linear. History is linear. And in the world today and and in the pagan mind, it was just this endless cycle of repetition. Life and death. And that was what... That was what Solomon was wrestling with somewhat in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the water goes into the river, it goes into the sea. It's like it's never done. People die, people are born. It's like, what's the point? But the Hebrews saw history as linear. And it is one of the apologetics that we use. It's called the teleological argument for God. History is linear, linear that while man is indeed responsible and his choices have consequences, God is sovereign and in his purposes will ultimately be accomplished. That was the way, that was in, it was in that context that, that the Bible was written. And it's in that context that we understand and we can plug things in to a timeline and say well, we can see where God has been and where God is going. This view of history affects the way we behave and the way we think about people and events, and it affects people like Gordon that, that Trevor talked to yesterday. The view of history that expects some goal or moving towards some kind of a realization, it's not just vague and, and who knows. There's some goal in history and, and everything points to that goal. So it may help if we don't think of history merely as that which has already transpired. When you hear history, immediately in our minds, we think, well, that means everything that's past. But I'd like to invite you to think about history more as chronology. So when you think about history, don't just think about history, but think chronology. Chronology is everything, and it it involves the future. So when I, when I mentioned the first day about how history is gives testimony to God as one of those revelations, I was thinking of it in this way, in terms of a chronology and not limited to what is past, although that is certainly part of it. So history includes the future as we talk about history, because we're talking about chronology. So the reason I believe this is critical to consider at this point right now is because our eschatology doesn't develop in a vacuum. So naturally when we're thinking about the coming king, we're think, we're, we're getting ready to talk about eschatology. And eschatology is, is the word that people use. And I, I got to thinking about this just a little bit. Like I don't know that new words are being created like this. Like I think there was a generation or a period of of time in history where it was cool to invent really good words that just described whole thing, big things. And I don't think we're doing that quite as much anymore. I don't know if that's something that should be revived. We should look into that. But eschatology is a word that describes what? The
2: study of That's
0: That's included. It is simply the study of last things. Last things. So not just end times, but but last things. How how does everything come to a conclusion? We're looking, we're thinking about how does God resolve everything that he started? That is really, if I I had a title, which I'm I'm not good at titles, I, I feel like I'd spend too much time trying to think of a title and it's like, I get down to business. But but if I had a title, it would be something like How God Resolves Everything He Started or something like that. And Maybe maybe somebody who's good at titles can help me. But, but anyway, we're thinking about this thing of, of our eschatology, our, our, the way that we expect all these things to get resolved doesn't develop in a vacuum. And why does that matter? Because I'm going to present a view of how this all concludes that may be different from someone else in this room and that's a big part of the reason for this disclaimer i don't want to run roughshod over somebody else's view of the coming of christ the king and how this all ends up i understand that i care about that and i don't i don't want to Obviously, I have to be true to the way I understand it, but I also want to underscore the fact that it didn't develop in a vacuum. There's, there, you didn't just choose to add that particular eschatological view onto the end of everything else you believe. It has to hold together. It, it, it didn't develop in a vacuum. It's not as simple as just reading and understanding the book of Revelation. It involves a hermeneutic. It involves an attempt to fit everything that together that's been revealed in a consistent and coherent way, a method or a theory of interpretation. So your eschatology is and will be consistent with a lot of other things that you believe about the church, about Israel, about the earth, and about even the devil and his angels and, and humanity and and the nations, all of that fits together in your in your. It did better. I mean, it has to, or you wouldn't accept it. it you'd. So I'll be our total view, <clears throat> and that's what we're going to look at today, if, if if we have time. And I'm just gonna try to be a little more relaxed today. I feel like maybe if if I can relax a little bit, then we might all benefit somehow. So I'm just gonna try to. Do the best I can with with what we've got. We're gonna uh, so a total view of redemptive history and God's purposes will inform our understanding of the consummation of it. That's what I'm trying to say. It cannot be otherwise. <clears throat> so I will be obliged. This is I'm still in my disclaimers here to reference things quickly and in passing, and and I I'd. I feel bad about that, but I'm not too worried about it. Hopefully you'll be inspired by that to do your own research and dig in and try to figure out how the various parts make up the whole. Now I wanna say too, um, I don't think I'll have a chance to say this much because we won't have much chance to get into the kingdom now. The kingdom now. I think we're gonna try to, we're gonna hit it in really fast, kind of a drive-by, We're going to see it as we go by, kind of out on the right side, maybe a little up on a little rise. We're going to see this kingdom now thing go by. But I I want to say that I'm not that impressed with a lot of the kingdom rhetoric that's popular now in, in many circles A thirty-thousand-foot view is not quite adequate. I don't know if you've you've heard that. It's just one of those buzzwords. Well, let's get it. Let's get a thirty thousand. Let's zoom out and get a thirty thousand. Well, I think what we need is more of a perspective from outer space, and that's what we're going to try. That's what we're going to shoot for today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter four. Revelation chapter four. <coughs> I'm going to ask. Uh, let's see who can I ask? Dale, have you done much reading? Would you re- Would you um, read this? Revelation four and five, and do what you can to try to help us feel this atmosphere. If you just. Stand and read that. Revelation chapter 4 and 5.
2: After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in the heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as if it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in the heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat on And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, The four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, and honor, and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof?" And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon." And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open the book, to read the book, to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all they that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down, and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And all
0: God's people said amen thank you Dale um, so so this is just a a picture just a snapshot of a glimpse into heaven in a specific point in time when it this scroll was brought out. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. What I'm suggesting is this scroll is... the the deed to the earth and to everything that that is in it. So what Adam lost because Adam was was created the image of God and was given dominion and all this stuff And, and he forfeited that through sin and Jesus has come and taken that back and all things are put under his feet and now he's he's opening this scroll but but somebody whether it's man or satan and we'll look at that briefly isn't giving up easily isn't just letting that go easily and so so what happens from revelation chapter 6 to revelation chapter 19 it is is a description of how Jesus goes through the process of taking back everything and restoring everything and reclaiming everything that's rightfully his. But this time, it's not by invitation. This time, it's not, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. This time, it's not the lamb. The lamb, does it talk about the lamb here? I saw, um, I looked and behold in the midst stood a lamb. <clears throat> so it's still a lamb in that sense, but this time he's coming as a lion and he's going to prevail. He's going to prevail. So what I'd like to do, just in order to make some more sense out of that, this is just how I I felt would make, would help me um Talk about this thing. Help put it, help hopefully bring a few other loose ends together and tie some things completely together in one place, and then um, maybe not (coughs) focus so much on the particulars of his coming, but we want to just look at the scope of the significance of the scroll. That's, that's what we're going to try to do here in the next 15 minutes. The scope of the significance of this scroll. So what we're going to do is we're going to draw a picture of history here on this board, if we can. We're going to draw this out. This is history. And history had a specific beginning, and, and the world as we know it has a specific end. We're going we're to Trace that out if we can. And it, it, and so what I would also say, just for your, just, um, so, so redemptive history is best described in six covenants, and that's, that's, how, that's the framework that we're going to use to talk about the scope of this scroll, is these six covenants. Now of course we're not gonna go in depth <coughs> in any of them, but, but history lays itself out neatly into these six covenants. <coughs> and if you're thinking that I'm getting ready to launch into dispensationalism, <coughs> I hope that you're disappointed. Because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about dispensationalism. We're not talking about replacement theology or any of those other things. This is, I don't know what it's called. We need to come up with a word for it. But at the heart of every one of these covenants is a relationship between the parties characterized by faithfulness and loyalty in love. I'll say that again. At the heart of every one of these covenants is a relationship between the parties characterized by faithfulness, loyalty, and love. That's what it was about. All right, let's get started here with Adam. So we're going to draw this out quickly. and I, so, so, so it all started with Adam. Um, I'll just take this over here, and this is where we'll work from again. So Adam, to Adam God said, be fruitful, have dominion, the trees and the herbs are yours, all birds and animals are herbivores. That's what he told Adam. Be fruitful, have dominion, and <clears throat> the trees and the herbs are all yours for food. The failure of mankind to be faithful resulted in this covenant ending in destruction of a flood. So this one, they weren't faithful, they weren't loyal in love. It resulted in a flood. It ended in destruction of all living things. And this is where I want to say again in this context, there is some question as to whether man's failure and capitulation to Satan resulted in Satan having some legitimate claim to authority on earth over the earth. There's some question about whether Satan actually has authority over this earth because of Adam's choice or whether man in his corruption and rebellion seeking to usurp the role of God becomes a pawn of Satan, resulting in a practical dominion of Satan. So I don't know if you see the, the difference there. They, they kind of have the same net result but there's there's I'm just sharing with you that there's some Debate on that, and I don't claim to know. So right after Adam we had who? God made a covenant with Noah, Noah. and um, in this covenant God says to Noah, well first God God makes a covenant with creation and that's important for us later on. Turn quickly to to Genesis nine. this is where we find this covenant. Genesis nine <coughs> It, well, in in eight, um, eight 20, 21 and twenty two, is God's covenant with creation. God made a commitment to creation, but I'm not gonna. Um, the Lord said in His heart, "I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done." While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So, he, so God, God says to creation, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. God, To Noah, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, the animals will fear you, they are given into your hand, you can eat them with your herbs. So now man is allowed to eat meat with his herbs, or herbs with his meat, however you'd like to, to look at that. But I'd also like to insert here something called, <clears throat> I don't need to do that, but we gotta have another section. Is there a, where's that flip chart at? I need a, I need a further study category over here. I don't wanna confuse this panel with the other, like check this out. This is an interesting panel over here. <clears throat> That's fine, right there. So I'd like to invite you to to check out what's called the Noahide Law. And if you want to know more about why that's interesting, um, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. So God made a covenant with Noah, and it is here in this covenant that we have the introduction of the civil mandate. Romans 13 finds its... Legitimacy here in in Genesis chapter 9. That's important. It's important for Jesus being the coming king. Because the nations figure figure in importantly into this into the end. um, where Where do we find that? It says in verse 9, chapter chapter 9, verses 6 and 7: whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. God gave man the responsibility to govern himself and to punish crime right here in in this covenant with Noah. So we have something new introduced in this covenant with Noah. And I drew a line too quickly. I don't want a line right there like that. I want a different line. So this line goes all the way to the end. That we're gonna call the nations. We're gonna call this the earth. Well, the earth, and we're gonna call it nations. Um, The failure of, of mankind in this covenant didn't result in absolute destruction, or it hasn't yet. That's delayed, and God told Noah that he would never again flood, destroy the earth with a flood, but he will destroy the earth again, this time with what? With fire. So this covenant actually goes all the way through to the end until the fireball. Now, the failure of mankind to be faithful resulted in the scattering of the nations. Rather than the destruction of all, everything living. And God now uses national interests to manage the progress of evil. And I know I'm going like that, that'd be fun to just dive into that. We talked about that briefly at breakfast where I was sitting about, um, about Babel and, and just how everybody scattered and now. God uses one nation you, you, you can see this even um, Habakkuk wrestled with this thing of how can you use one nation to judge another and that one almost worse than this one and, and this is part of why Israel moved in and, and annihilated the Amorites but it wasn't time because the iniquity of the Amorites wasn't yet full and, and all of this so I'm just trying to give you a picture of how God uses national interests to, to manage the progress of evil while this particular thing continues to go on. God's doing all that, and he, he says the, the, the king doesn't bear his sword in vain. Like, it's not for nothing that he carries a sword. He has that legitimacy, and he finds it here. That's important. All right, so the next one that we find is Abraham, and I'm going to draw it like this. So God was pretty disappointed at Babel. I think that's pretty obvious. But he didn't just destroy it and start over the new covenant with mankind. He, he said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going, to, I'm going to invite Adam or Abraham. I'm going to invite Abraham to come out. God says to Abraham, leave this world in its, car, in its carnal security. Leave this world. Come out and I'm going to make you to be a blessing. I'm going to give you this land. And he confirmed this covenant after the deal with Lot, after the defeat of Kirleomer and the kings who were with him, and this is when he received that blessing from Melchizedek. It was confirmed a third time with formality and a lot of significance. It was confirmed a fourth time after the problem with Hagar, and a fifth time after he demonstrated his faith on Mount Moriah, and this time with an oath. And the Gentiles benefit from this covenant through their relationship to Abraham. So so these Gentiles aren't left out of God's plan at this point. But the way they have access to God now is through Abraham. Okay, so after Abraham, we had a covenant with Israel. And then... That was not a new covenant, but more of a development of this covenant. Actually, it's a a further development of the covenant with Abraham. We're pretty familiar with that. Um, We find the the real words of that covenant, it's called the, the, um, the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 19 through 24 is the Book of the Covenant. I'm not gonna try to describe any of these in detail, but after that we have a really interesting covenant. And, and this is the one that I'm just really, really fascinated with. Um, mainly because it's, it's, it's a development of the, of the covenant of God with, how many of you knew there was a Davidic covenant? I wanna see your hands. That God made a covenant with David. It, we don't hear about it much. It's really mysterious, and, but, it, but we find it in 2 Samuel 7. I guess I could put this down here. 2 Samuel 7, and this one is, um, what did I say, Exodus 19 through 24, and the whole book of Deuteronomy. Is that right, did I spell that right? Deuteronomy, is it D-E-U or D-U-E? D-E-U, well, yeah, we're going for t D-E-U. D-E-U. like that. All right, so this covenant uh, was made with David after, it's important to note that it was after he had brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The king of Salem, what does that mean? king of Salem. Who was the king of Salem? Melchizedek. I don't know if there's significance there or not, but I suspect there is. David, the covenant is, is really mysterious, but this is the type that's most used to describe Jesus as king. And that's why it's important. Like whatever it was about this covenant with David, it was clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And whoever Jesus Christ is as king finds a lot of its meaning back in whatever was going on with David. And I don't claim to understand that. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. This is something that I'm going to put over here on this side. Like I want to know more about this covenant with David and what does it mean. This covenant, so so I would just give you this too. Um, it would be really fascinating to read I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that because I almost think that if we don't, at least we're going to read Psalm 110, Psalm 110, and I think as you listen to this Psalm and you think about David and as you think about Jesus being the seed of David, I think we'll we'll get a sense for how important this thing is. Let's have one of the girls. Read that. Has somebody still not had a chance to read? All right, we've got Megan up here. Stand chapter. and read Psalm 110.
2: The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my foot, thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast to do of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in in the way. Therefore, shall he lift up the head?
0: Thank you. That is full of mystery, it is full of richness, depth that we will have all of eternity to, to discover and explore. Thank you for reading that. Just wanted to, us to somehow get a sense of, of some of the significance, anyway, of what God was doing in David. Um, so this covenant, it kind of ends this way. It ends in, in, with three things. Three things. It ends in a dispersion. So we have a dispersion where Israel, the ten northern tribes, get kind of dil- diluted or dissolved or something back up into the, nation, the, uh, the other nations. And we have... Um, that's not how I wanted to draw that, sorry. So, it, 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 so there was a dispersion and there was a, a remnant that carries through. Um, get this right here. So there was a dispersion, there was a remnant, and then there was a replacement. And then up here, I'd like to just quickly say that Daniel 9 talks about these, so so these, this dispersion and the remnant, the remnant is under the dominion of the kings of the Gentiles until today. Even though they are a state, they're they're still under the dominion of the Gentiles. They don't, um. so anyway, and what were those four kingdoms of the Gentiles that Daniel saw? I'm just gonna draw them up here real quickly. So the first one was Babylon. What was the next one? Medo-Persia. What was the third one? Greece, and the fourth? Rome. Rome, you guys are good. All right, so God's people were under the dominion of the Gentiles. And then it also involves a replacement. So what I'm going to draw next, and I'm going to let this line go through, because this is this is Judah. We're going to call this Judah. Or the Jews, or let's just call it Judah. So we have don't have confusion. But but God also did something where He called out through Christ. And this is where we find the church. So all this was just to give us, to get us to here. So where we have the earth, we have the nations, we have the church, and we have Israel. I guess we could have called that Israel. And these are the, the major um, entities, the major um, yeah entities. We'll just go with that. So then, then we're introduced to Christ. Christ comes along, and in Luke's genealogy, Luke, when he wanted to, to kind of root Jesus in historical context, he traces his genealogy back to whom? Adam. To Adam. When Matthew wanted to root Jesus somewhere in, in this where did he trace his genealogy back to? Abraham. To Abraham. But he he does it very carefully and very artistically. It was fourteen generations back to who? In fourteen generations back to. I'm not even sure if I remember. Was it three? So but he but he stops. And, and highlights David and he highlights Abraham. That was kind of the, what I was trying to draw out of draw out of Matthew's genealogy as he's trying to re- connect Jesus into some kind of historical framework. He highlights David and he highlights Abraham, giving Jesus some kind of a, an identity going forward. But John, when he, what did John do with Jesus' genealogy? Do you remember that? What was it? Take it he takes it all the way back to God. But he says, this word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the this, this second man. So what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to say is that here we find again the identity of Jesus as the last Adam, the identity of Jesus as the second man in John where he's connect, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, But we're introducing the seed of David. The seed of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. The root and offspring of David. So here's, in the New Testament, if you would quickly just look at the times when, and I I read that in Matthew 22, I think it was, where Jesus said to them, who do you, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? David then calls him Lord. How is he his son? No one was able to answer him. When, when Jesus was, when the, the authors, when the, the, in the Gospels, when they thought about Jesus as the King, they connected him to David, the seed of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But was David? Yeah, I'm going to get lost in the weeds here real quick. So So Jesus when he came, he offered a a legitimate and a, and a real kingdom to Israel. When he sent them out, I'm This is the way I I interpret it. When he sent them out in Matthew chapter 10, do you remember who he sent them to? To Israel? I heard a couple things. Who did Jesus send his disciples out to in Matthew chapter 10? Oh my. So. Into the way of the Gentiles. He said, don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You have to, yeah. You're grabbing those phrases out. Yeah, good job. Thanks. Only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to them and he said, "Here I am. I'm your king, but I'm going to do it my way." And they said, "No, we don't want a king like that. That's not the kind of king we want. We will not have this man to rule over us." Um, there's several parables that speak to that whole dimension, but he did offer them a kingdom. And then it was in Matthew 11 that we see him saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now he's inviting everyone to come and be part of his kingdom. And this is where when we talk about the kingdom and and we talk about the principles of the kingdom and, and the Sermon on the Mount and those kinds of things, there's a very real aspect of the kingdom being a reality for us today. We have a king, and he has and he has rules, and he has a, a we, we have an alliance, we have a um, citizenship, and all those things that, that are the qualities of a kingdom. But the fullness of the kingdom is not yet, and that's where, if, if this would have happened, if, if people would have thought about this 200 years ago, they probably would have come up with some kind of analogy for this. But because we're living in this time and we're talking about it, they just The best they can do is say the not yet now. That's how we do it nowadays. It's the not yet now kingdom. That, that's how we describe these things. Not yet now. But, but Paul says in Romans 11:25, 25, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should, be un, you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles Has come in. So we're going to call this period of history the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this church that we're talking about was born on Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leaves with the church at the rapture, at which time God fulfills His promises to Israel, called the time of Jacob's trouble. And I, I'm just going fast because that's not our point to talk about that specifically. Um, but when we see that, we can, we can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where, where Jesus comes for the church. We can also read about some of that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he who now letteth will let unto him be taken out of the way, and that man of sin will be revealed. So these are the things that Jesus has come to deal with. That Jesus needs to resolve. That God needs to resolve. He's got four things here, at least, that, that, that need resolved. There's things that got started, and that, that God has carried on, and He's had this plan, and He didn't throw away His plan. He's got, he's got these four things. How is He going to Going to resolve them. Every single one of them is resolved in the opening of that scroll. That's what's involved in that. This is that. This is what's in that scroll. So whenever um, John s- stood there, I think forget whether he what his posture was exactly in Revelation chapter five. I wept much. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much. But the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And so what we're saying is that the period of history that we read about in Revelation 6 through 19, is talking about specifically this. And this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Is when those seals are being opened and and Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is resolving the the, the issue of the earth. And you can read about How he how the creation is groaning. In in Romans chapter 8, it says, all creation groans and travails, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Um, So you can check out how he resolves that in Romans 8. And you can check out how he resolves this thing with the nations in Daniel 1 through 8. And you can check out how he resolves this thing with Judah. In Daniel's Daniel 9 through 12. And then you can see how he resolves the thing with the church. I already gave you those. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, and many other places. And so after that, Christ restores and fulfills, and then there's a judgment, and then there's the end and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. So that's a picture of redemptive history. Let me read quickly for you. Or I don't know if, yeah, shall we? I just want to read this, because this is, this is our coming king. This is what he's coming to do and to fulfill. Revelation 19:11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it describes how this coming, when, when Jesus comes with His saints... And, and does exactly that. Resolves everything in one stroke. There's a song in your folders that captures all of this beautifully. And, and I'm just excited about that because I don't expect you to, to remember much of what I said today, actually. But this song captures it so well. And I'm glad that you're gonna have this song and you're gonna have it in your hearts. Because you can take this song with you and it can remind you of Jesus, our coming can. I'd like for us to be able to, To would you come and, and lead that song for us? The, he is worthy. He is worthy. I think most of the students knew which one I was thinking of.
1: Children.
0: That's fine, I understand. He is worthy. So this song captures exactly all Of the significance. Yes. Number six. Specifically, this phrase Mm -hmm. um, The lion of Judah conquered the grave for every people and nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with his son. It's rich. Yes, it is. all right let's do this
1: it's honor the king i Is yes, he worthy? Is
0: Quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. God bless you.